Um, my name is David Shin, and I have the privilege of working at Washita Hills College, and it's a privilege to be here at ASI in 2022. So it's 3.31, and I value your time, so let's bow our heads together as we pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this opportunity to explore the topic of imagination and transformation. We pray that you would bless us in this seminar this afternoon as we reflect, as we ponder, as we think about spiritual themes. We pray for the Holy Spirit that inspires would also be the Spirit that instructs. In Jesus' name, amen. This is a seminar. It's not a sermon, but I would be amiss to not begin the presentation with some theological background for the topic of our discussion. Our topic is using our imagination for transformation. And the passage that I wanted to begin this afternoon is a familiar one. It's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. But we all with unveiled faces, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. Everyone familiar with this passage? By beholding, you become changed. The, the preamble to this passage is found in verse 13, and maybe this one isn't as familiar. We are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not stare at the end of what was fading away. And so then he says, but we all with unveiled face. So the, the pretext to this passage is this encounter that Moses has with God, and he asks God, can I see your face? And God says, you can't see my face and live. And then he says, look, I'll do something for you. You can see my back. So he puts him in the cleft of the rock, and as God passes by, he puts his hand in the cleft of the rock, and then Moses peers out and sees not the face of God, but the back of God. After this, he comes down from the mountain, and you know the story. This is the best picture I can find on Google. <laughs> his face was lit up, and it was so bright that the children of Israel had to put a veil over his face. Now, that veil eventually did fade away, and then Paul goes into this famous passage afterwards in verse 18, but we all with unveiled face, contrasting to Moses, whose face was veiled, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. So this is the, the preamble or the introduction to our topic this afternoon. It's on transformation. And the best way I thought of illustrating this was from a man that I used to listen to all the time. How many of you know who this is? Charles Bradford, former North American Division president. How many of you have heard Charles Bradford preach? Oh, incredible preacher. My dad had a tape. Some of you don't know what that is, but uh, a tape that... And it was in a series from the GC Ministerial Association. And every several weeks or so, they would mail out a tape of a great preacher. And one of them was of C.E. Bradford. And I had that tape, and I would listen to it on a regular basis. And especially, it was my freshman year in college. I was a theology student. And I was to give a terrifying presentation to my peers in front of the whole school, and then afterwards they would give 
an assessment. It was homiletics. And so I was preparing for this thing. I was nervous. I was not apt in public speaking. And the way that I prepared for this was by listening to this tape by C.E. Bradford. I listened to it morning, noon, and night. It was my meditation day and night. And then I went, when I gave up, got up to give the presentation, I thought it went well. Afterwards, one of my African-American friends came to me and said, David, you preached like a brother. <laughs> Amen. Now, important note here, I love African-American preaching. Nothing like it. I wish I had the language of angels to be able to give that type of elocution. Best preaching there is. And when that brother of mine said, you preach like a brother, I was like, what do you mean? A brother in Christ? <laughs> and then I sat down back in the days of VHS with my instructor, put in the VHS tape, and I watched myself preach. Painful experience, by the way. Yeah, it, is. it is. And it was surreal because I was watching an Asian man <laughs> preach like a black man. <laughs> it was just, I said, what happened? Well, by beholding, I had become changed. This is the way that we work and function and this is from Arnold Schwarzenegger, the former governor of California and a bodybuilder, very famous. This is what he said. It is the same process I used in bodybuilding. What you do is create a vision of who you want to be and then live that picture as if it were already true. And he talks about how he was in the army in Austria and he would have these pictures of muscle men plastered all over his wall, and Mr. Universe. That was the vision that he had. And eventually, he became Mr. Universe. Now, think about it. All of us have in our brains a mental picture, an image. And that image is very powerful. And today I want to talk about mental images that we have in our brain that are very critical to our transformation. This is from Psychology Today. Seasoned athletes use vivid, highly detailed internal images and run-throughs of the entire performance, engaging all their senses in their mental rehearsal, and they combine their knowledge of the sports venue with mental rehearsal. World champion golfer Jack Nicklaus has said, I never hit a shot, not even in practice, without having a very in-focus picture of it in my head. Athletes go through in vivid detail in their mind, in the case of golf, the shot before it takes place. Divers go through the turns and the spins of their dive prior to it in their mental, in their minds, and I do it for public speaking too. For this presentation, I went through in my mind uh, a mental picture of what I wanted my presentation to be like. 
a very powerful thing that takes place. This is from Lindsay Vaughn, the skier, gold medalist. I always visualize the run before I do it. By the time I get to the start gate, I've run that race a hundred times already in my head, picturing how I'll take the turns. All of us have an imagination, powerful thing, and we have the ability to visualize something before it takes place. And the studies are fascinating. This is from Psychology Today again, of the impact of visualization. The impact of running through something in your head ahead of time it has a powerful effect. Mental images impacts many cognitive processes in, brain, in the brain. Motor control, attention, perception, planning, and memory. So the brain is getting trained for actual performance during visualization. It can be found that mental practices can enhance motivation, increase confidence and self-efficacy, improve motor performance, prime your brain for success, and increases states of flow. Have you ever visualized something in your head? The studies have shown that that visualization is very, very close to the very act of doing it. And that's why Jesus says if you commit adultery in your mind, you're guilty of the act of adultery. Now, this is from the Cambridge Dictionary about visualization. Visualization is creating a mental picture in your mind. Powerful thing that our minds can do. And just in case you're wondering where this is all going, this is a biblical study, not some new age thing on visualization. But, but there is some biblical and spirit of prophecy justification for this idea. And here it is from Desire of Ages, page 83. Familiar quote. It would be well for us to spend a thoughtful hour each day in contemplation of the life of Christ. We should take it point by point and let the, what did she say? Imagination. Imagination. She didn't say exegesis. I'm all for exegesis, by the way. She didn't say analysis. She says let the imagination. This is right brain creative thinking grasp each scene, especially the closing ones, as we thus dwell upon his great sacrifice for us, our confidence in him will be more constant, our love will be quickened, and we shall be more deeply imbued with his spirit. In other words, this is one way of reading scripture. And in Western society, this is very foreign to us because we're all about analysis. We're all about breaking things apart, and I'm all for that. But this is a very right-brain, creative part, and it's biblically centered. You read the passage, and you let your imagination picture it. You let your imagination visualize it. You let your imagination feel what is taking place, and she says that certain things will happen as a result. Our confidence in him will be more constant, our love will be quickened, and we shall be more deeply imbued with his spirit. Now, I, I need to take a very important parenthetical pause here because this is a very powerful thing and it is going to develop by the grace of God a generation that looks like Jesus before he comes. How many of you want to be a part of that generation and receive the seal of God? 
All right? So this is an important critical part of that, is that the mental image that you have in your brain causes you to become like that person. And it's a very right brain exercise, and in the end of time, there's going to be not only a generation that looks like Jesus, but there's going to be a generation that's going to be the image of Satan, the image of the beast. And as God puts his signature on the final portrait of himself, on the last generation, in the end of time, the devil's going to have his mark too. He's going to say, this generation's mine. So it shouldn't surprise us that for true biblical use of our imagination, there's also going to be a counterfeit. And so I want to spend a few moments on this because uh, this is becoming very prevalent and apparent in our world today, in the emergent church movement. And so this is a pause in this, and I think this is very important for us to discuss in terms of the right use of our imagination and a very real, uh, uh, what should I say, uh, sensational use of our imagination. And it starts with the Society of Jesus. The Society of Jesus, otherwise known as the Jesuit Order. Now, look, I'm not into conspiracy theories, but uh, there is something called the Counter-Reformation. The Counter-Reformation was a movement that was to bring Protestantism back into the fold, and it's interesting that the first time in Catholic history right now, we have the first Jesuit Pope. First time. And he said in 2017, at the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, that the Reformation is over. It's done. They brought Protestantism back. Now the question is, how did they do it? They did it through education. And this is from Malachi Martin, the Jesuits, page 41. The Society of Jesus was established by the papacy in 1540 as a very special fighting unit at the total and exclusive disposal of the Roman Pope. From their beginnings, the Jesuits were conceived in a military mode. And this is from a Jesuit himself, indicating that the purpose of the Jesuit order was one, bring Protestantism back. And it's ironic that the first Jesuit pope would say, we've done it. Now, just in case you're wondering what Ellen White's position is on the Jesuit order, I encourage you to read this section in the book, The Great Controversy. It is not PC, if you know what I'm talking about. It's not politically correct. She's quite direct, actually. This is from Great Controversy, page 234. And if you, if you haven't read this before, it is quite daunting. At this time, the order of the Jesuits was created. The most cruel, unscrupulous, and powerful of the champions of popery. Cut off from every earthly tie and human interest. Dead to the claims of natural affection, reason, and conscience. Wholly silenced. There was no crime too great for them to commit, no deception too base for them to practice, no disguise too difficult for them to assume. Vowed to perpetual poverty and humility, it was their studied aim to secure wealth and power to be devoted to overthrow Protestantism and the reestablishment of papal supremacy. That's the prophet. That's the prophet. What was the training of the Jesuit order? Nasius Loyola, the founder of the Jesuit order, stated regarding the training of the Jesuits, and listen to this, imbue into him spiritual forces which he would find very difficult to eliminate later. Spiritualism. Put within this man forces that he can't get rid of. 
We're talking about a form of possession. Now, what type of training did Ignatius Loyola do? This is from Malachi Martin, again, a Jesuit. We're going to primary sources. And he says, priests who joined this group underwent strenuous initiation. For weeks at a time, they maintained absolute silence. Under the skilled supervision of a director, they practiced a form of mystical meditation until each of them emerged from that weeks-long regimen a spiritual fighter completely won over to warfare, utterly obedient servant of the Pope. Training very specific, a form of mystical meditation. I have a book in my library from Richard Foster, Quaker theologian, and this was actually a textbook in one of my courses, best known for his book, Celebration of Discipline, first published in 1978, sold more than two and a half million copies. Christianity Today lauded Celebration of Discipline as one of the ten best books of the 20th century. This is a guide for spirituality, and it's from a Quaker theologian. I mean, it sounds very innocuous, doesn't it? And I have the 1978 edition in my library. I ordered it on eBay. I had a new edition, but I went back to the original edition that sold, you know, like hotcakes. And it's interesting because in the 1978 edition, there is this quote that I'm going to put up on the screen that was later removed for obvious reasons. And it's interesting what this, this, this Quaker theologian says in his book. Here it is. 1978 edition, page 2728. I have the book in my library. This is not uh, apocryphal, uh, apocryphal quote. Listen to this. And notice he uses an interesting word here. Imagination. Ah, imagination. In your imagination, allow your spiritual body, shining with light, to rise out of your physical body. Out-of-body experiences. So imagine an out-of-body experience. This is from a Quaker theologian who sold a book that went red-hot in terms of a best-selling author. In your imagination, let your spiritual body, shining with light, rise out of your physical body. Look back so that you can see yourself lying in the grass and reassure your body that you will return momentarily. Oh, how reassuring is that? All right. Imagine your spiritual self, alive and vibrant, rising up through the clouds into the stratosphere. Listen quietly, anticipating the unanticipated. Note carefully any instruction given. This is from a Protestant. Now it's interesting, in another quote, what this gentleman ascribes to be a source and a wealth of information in spirituality. This is in Richard Foster's book, Prayer, Finding the Heart's True Home. Foster commends the spiritual exercises of Ignatius of Loyola, the founder of the Jesuit order, as a school of prayer for all of us. Now, this movement of Catholic mysticism, which is really the incorporation of Eastern mysticism baptized under the garb of Christianity, is becoming very prevalent across evangelical 
uh, Society and the Community of Faith, and this is from Tony Campalo, who I used to listen to all the time, and he says, I learned about this way of having a born-again experience from reading the Catholic mystics, especially, especially the spiritual exercises of Ignatius Loyola, like most Catholic mystics, he developed an intense desire to experience a oneness with God. Now, moving very quickly, this is from Leonard Sweet, Quantum Spirituality, page 10. Mysticism, once cast to the sidelines of Christian tradition, is now situated in postmodernistic culture near the center. In the words of the greatest theologian of the 20th century, Jesuit philosopher, religion dogmatist Karl Rahner, the Christian of tomorrow will be a mystic, one who has experienced something, or he will be nothing. Now, I'm going to tell you a personal experience of mine to show how even in our own denomination, in some circles this has become, uh, and I, I think the intentions are good, but this has become something that is being incorporated in some circles as well. I took a class, and I won't mention where, uh, that I had to do in my, my further education. And, and we, we were given the opportunity to go to a spiritual retreat. We would get credit for that. And I went to the spiritual retreat because I looked at the requirements, and it looked very easy. I would spend the entire time in silence. Does that sound familiar? I was like, oh, that sounds easy, and I didn't know any of this information. So there was a group of about 12 of us that went on this retreat, and it was surreal. We'd sit at the dinner table, and all you would hear is the clanking of silverware and the slurping of soup. Just looked around, and you'd pass each other in the hallway. Whole weekend in silence. And then we gathered together in a room, and by this time, I was like, this is getting a little bit weird. They said, sit in a circle. So like a good student that wanted credit, I sat in a circle while they burned incense all around me and played a tape recorder saying, please place your hands close to the face of the person next to you and feel the energy emanating from them. And look, like a good student. And I came out of that, and I said, this is weird but I felt strangely spiritual. And uh, this, 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 this is becoming more and more prevalent because people are looking for an experience. This is from Thomas Keating, Basil and Basil Pennington, two Catholic monks. Many Christians who have taken their prayer life seriously have been greatly helped by yoga, Zen, transcendental meditation, and similar practices, especially where they have been initiated by reliable teachers and have their and have a solidly developed Christian faith to find their inner form and meaning to the resulting experiences. This is from Leonard Sweet again. All of creation is made alive with the holy breath of the Creator, breathing Yahweh. Breath is breathing the holy breath of Yahweh. Breathing and heartbeat are in tune with the name. Breathe in Yah. Breathe out Way. I guarantee you'll relax. Moving very quickly here, Henry Nouwen, the quiet repetition of a single word can help us to descend with the mind into the heart. This way of simple prayer opens us to God's active presence. So where is this all going? I mean, you may say, oh, big deal. Burning incense, being in a room with silence, 
uh, incorporating some things from mysticism, you know, what, what's the big deal as long as we love Jesus? And this is from Brian McLaren's book cover, Generous Orthodoxy, a proponent of the emergent church movement. And you can kind of see where this is going. He says, why I'm a missional, evangelical, post-Protestant, liberal, conservative, mystical, poetical, biblical, charismatic, contemplative, fundamentalist, Calvinist, Anabaptist, Anglican, Methodist, Catholic, Green, incarnational, depressed, yet hopeful, emergent, unfinished Christian, a confession and manifesto from a senior leader in the emergent church movement. And he goes on to say this. Oh, I had a quote, but he basically said, look, it doesn't matter if you convert people or not. They can stay in their respective Hindu or Islam religions. The main thing is that they have some experience. And this is from Tony Kampala speaking my mind, page 149 and 150. A theology of mysticism provides some hope for common ground between Christianity and Islam. Both religions have their histories, examples of a static union with God. So in reality, what mysticism does is it downplays doctrine, it downplays a cognitive experience, and because this is the only way that we're going to bring about a false unity in the end of time. Because if you make it cerebral, if you make it intellectual, unity becomes impossible. And here it is from the Bible, Revelation chapter 16, verse 13 through 14. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, who's Satan, out of the mouth of the beast, the papacy, out of the mouth of the false prophet, apostate Protestantism. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. This is a false convergence, a false unity in the end of time, and the thing that's driving it is unclean frogs. Spiritualism becomes the platform for a, a unity, a false type of unity in the end of time. Now, final quote in this section. This is from Ted Wilson. Remember, you remember this address, 2010, GC conference, GC session, July 2010. Stay away from non-biblical spiritual disciplines or methods of spiritual formation. They are rooted in mysticism, such as contemplative prayer, centering prayer, and the emerging church movement in which they are promoted. So this is from a world leader. Appreciate his stand on this, saying, look, we can't be a part of this false unity in the end of time. So in a nutshell, there is a counterfeit use of our imagination. And it's very powerful. As you've seen in Richard Foster's book, he said, look, imagine an out-of-body experience. And false meditation is basically emptying your mind so that you can talk with demons, a form of spiritualism, and have this encounter. And imagination is a very powerful thing. I've been in situations where individuals say that you should imagine Jesus sitting in front of you, and some people say they've actually seen Jesus, and Jesus comes and talks to them. Look, we need to communicate in prayer, and our intellectual knowledge needs to come through the Word. Jesus is in heaven, in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. And if you see him before you, that's not Jesus, friends. And if he talks to you, run away. So this is the backdrop. Imagination is a very powerful thing. There's a false form of the use of meditation and imagination. Now what is the truth? Now is there a basis for biblical meditation and sanctified imagination? Now sometimes we can throw out the baby with the bathwater and say, look, um, I'm not going to use my imagination at all. 
Never judge something by its abuse. Amen. God gave us an imagination. I was reading from Mind, Character, and Personality that Jesus used his imagination in his illustrations. So God has given us a brain, an imagination, and we need to use our imagination but in a sanctified biblical way. Is meditation biblical? You can find these quotes all through Scripture. Here it is. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. There it is. Joshua 1.8, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night. And this is something that is important for us to recognize. I just finished a book, A Whole New Mind, by Daniel Pink, and he talks about the use of our right brain. Now, all of us have two hemispheres, and the science has shown that the two hemispheres are responsible for different things. We in the West, we prize this side of our brain, and rightfully so. The information age, the revolution of the last 20th century was a response, or was a result, I should say, of logic, science, and all of these things that have given us wonderful things in terms of the progression of our society. But he brings out that the new era that we're coming into is going to require more creativity. Creativity is a result of the workings of the right side of our brain. Creative, art, intuition, and last but not least, imagination. Imagination. Now, I'll tell you what's happened in the West in particular. It's almost like we read the Bible with half of our brain. We analyze it. We break it down. We do exegesis. And I'm all for that. I spent a lot of time and a lot of good, good hard-earned money going through graduate school to learn how to do analysis of Scripture. And I, and I treasure that. I, I appreciate good exegesis. But here's the issue, is that exegesis alone is lacking. Now, before you throw me out as a heretic here, I want to use an illustration. Um, my wife is five foot four, German background, blonde hair, blue-eyed, all of these attributes. I won't tell you her weight, but anyways, you know, all, all of these details and facts. But there is no emotion in that. The, I, I don't know the person. I have to engage her in a different way in order to get to know the individual. Now, when it comes to our relationship with God, through the text, I found that analysis dry analysis, which is necessary, doesn't hit me in my heart. Well, when I switch to the right side of the brain, it does. It does. Now, look at this from Thoughts on the Mount of Blessing, page one. <laughs> Just in case you think I'm crazy and you don't think that Ellen White espoused reading the Bible with both sides of our brain. Now, we need both. We need to be logical. We need to be coherent. We need to do good exegesis. But here, she's espousing to use our right side of the brain, in particular, in this particular quote. Listen to this. Let us in imagination. Right side of the brain. Go back to that scene 
and as we sit with the disciples on the mountainside, enter into the thoughts and feelings, that's right side of the brain too, that filled their hearts, understanding what the words of Jesus meant to those who heard them, we may discern in them a new vividness and beauty and also may gather for ourselves their deeper lessons. This quote again, let's read it again with this framework of the right side of our brain. It would be well for us to spend a thoughtful hour each day in contemplation of the life of Christ. We should take it point by point. Let the imagination grasp each scene, especially the closing ones. And this is, this is the result. As we thus dwell upon his sacrifice for us, number one, our confidence in him will be more constant. Number two, our love will be quickened and we shall be more deeply imbued with his spirit. Notice the nature of this. In other words, if you use your imagination based on the text, very clear on that. This is not Eastern meditation emptying your mind. This is filling your mind with the Word of God, but using your right brain and letting that guide your imagination through the text. She says that the, the result of this will be, look, your love will be quickened. In other words, it hits your heart. It hits your heart. And that's ultimately what we want. When you meet Jesus, let's imagine if Jesus were to walk into this room right now, heaven forbid you want to head for the nearest exit, right? You want your emotion to be, ah! Oh. First of all, I know you. But most importantly, I love you. Emotion. Emotion. How do we get that? It's not going to be like, ah, oh. I don't really know you. This is awkward. Remember I opened the door to the bathroom one time? There was a famous person that stood in front of me. It's the weirdest thing. Problem was, he didn't know me. I was like, ah. Just walked around him. I don't want that interaction with Jesus. You see, Jesus, I know about you. I know a lot of facts, figures. I don't know you. And I don't feel anything. I don't want that. Now, here's the thing. We can talk about this in theory, but it's been my quest because, you know, even though I'm Asian, I, I was born in the West, Tacoma Park, Maryland. You know, I'm thoroughbred Adventist, but uh, I've, been, I've been trained in Athens, Western education. And, you know, analysis is the name of the game. And, and this struggle to use my imagination has been challenging because I, I always have a challenge of turning off my inner critic. You ever have that happen? You know, it's like even when you're trying to write creatively, the inner critic, is, it's hard to turn that off. And so this, this of reading the Bible from a Hebrew perspective of both sides of the brain has been my quest. And so what I want to do for this last third of our presentation is to go through a practical exercise of how we can do this. And I pray that it's a blessing to you in, in your morning devotions. I encourage you to follow Ellen White's counsel. Go to the Gospels, take the portion of the last few moments of the life of Christ, and take out a journal and say, all right, I'm going to do what Ellen White tells me, and it's going to be guided by the text. I don't want anyone going out of here and you know, emptying your mind and doing these things that's not guided by Scripture. It's got to be text-driven. So based on the text... Use your imagination and follow the process. Now, 
The passage that I want to follow here, and I see some of my hermeneutics students from my college course. All right, this is rerun, but hey, repetition deepens impression. So here it is. I decided to do this. And I decided to do this with a passage that was so uh, um, commonly known. It almost loses its... You know, you've heard this text a thousand times, and familiarity kind of breeds this just like, oh, I've read this, there's nothing there. And so I decided that I would, I would study this passage in my morning devotions. So if you want to do this at home, find a passage from the life of Christ, and I pick this one. Luke chapter 23, verse 34, Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Let's, let's move on. Oh. Ask for, you know, for forgiveness, but they don't know what they do. And, then, and if you're into preaching, if you do topical preaching, you find a bunch of texts on forgiveness and then you cobble them together, throw in a little illustration you know, from the internet, chicken soup for the soul, throw in, a, throw in a little thing there, read the Bible passage for ceremonial reasons and talk about what you really want to talk about. That's not what we're talking about here. So you get into this passage, and I tell my students in my hermeneutics class that there are four steps to Bible study. And I'm going to demonstrate that here this afternoon. Observation, look at the passage. Don't come to any conclusions. Just observe. Is there anything unusual? Is there repetition? Is there an exchange? Is there proportion? Just, just observe the passage. The next one is interpretation. The classic research questions, who, what, when, where, why, how. Then after that, imagination. Imagination. After that, application. All right, so we're going to do that here. I went to the process of observation. This passage, Luke 23, 34. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And I noticed that uh, in the observation process that, look, this, this word came up and it was, I didn't know if it was going to go anywhere, but I just noticed that there was a repetition. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. A repetition of the plural pronoun, they or them. And I noticed that it was repeated three times. I was like, oh, that's interesting. And so I went to my research question. Who are they? Who are they? Now, obviously, this, this applies to all of us in application. But there's an immediate context to this. This is universal application, and I don't want to minimize that, but there, there is a, a, a part of this that is, is in the context of this. So here it is. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. Do you see the word repeated here? Uh, they, 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 them, they, they. All right. So who are they? That's the question. So the same they that Jesus said forgive them in the immediate context are the same ones that divided his garments and cast lots. 
So everyone following me here? This is not eisegesis. <laughs> it's in the passage. I compared Scripture with Scripture, and this is from John chapter 19, verse 23, and it clarifies this. Who are they? Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier apart. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, this is from the New Living Translation, which I don't use often, by the way, but it clarifies it. It says, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they divided his clothing among the, how many? Four of them. So, using your imagination, imagine four muscular, brute, calloused Roman soldiers with necks like tree trunks, bulging biceps, veins coming out, and these guys are, are big. Right? Can you see it? The question is, why are there four? It's a very utilitarian function. There were always four in a crucifixion to hold the man down. Just using logic, one to hold his feet, one to hold one arm, the other to hold the other arm, and one to drive the spikes. So you can picture it. These four soldiers. <clears throat> They've done this a million times, maybe. Lay the Son of God down. One holding his feet. Another his one arm. The other, the other arm, while the other one drives the nails. This is what Ellen White tells us to do. All right? Can you see it? Can you see it? So there's four. There's four. Now, I'm switching between right and left brain, but that, that right brain exercise, to me, it draws me in, doesn't it? I mean, just rather than just doing left brain analysis of the text, when you see these soldiers calloused, hardened, and you see the Lamb, the Son of God, in his purity, and Ellen White says that when you looked at his face, there was nothing but nobility and, and innocence. And he's not fighting. He's not screaming. He's not cursing. He just lays down like a lamb led to the slaughter. That's the picture. That's the imagery. Now, the text brings something else out as well because, and I love the New King James, but the New King James doesn't capture this. And it's, it's not in the same way of the original language. Now, the Greek language is very beautiful when it comes to syntax, specifically when it talks about the, the time factor of when something is happening. The, the English language doesn't do it justice. They tell you when something starts and when something ends or tells you when something is continuing. And, and for this passage, the New King James, or even the King James, sorry guys, doesn't capture this the same way. This is from the New American Standard Bible. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Is there a difference? Is there a difference between this passage and, and the way that this... 
This one seems to indicate that this is something that, you know, just happened in a punctiliar manner. But this one here, but Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. In other words, Jesus is saying, Father, forgive them while they are doing something to him. Are you following me? This is a concurrent happening. And in the original language, this is something that they are continuing to do. In other words, it's a process. So when you put it together, the, the picture that the Bible text brings out is that while these four muscular soldiers are crucifying him or doing this to him, Jesus is saying something. And this is what he's saying. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Now, the, the part of this here is that th there is some evidence that could indicate that he didn't say this just once. So if you could picture this again, as the soldiers are crucifying him, and in the very act of crucifying him, he is saying, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. That's the text. After this, I went to the book Desire of Ages. You want to, always want to check yourself with the prophet. And I said, uh, what does Ellen White have to say? Now, I've read the book Desire of Ages multiple times. Love that book. And I went to the part on the crucifixion, and I looked at it from this perspective. And here it is. Ellen White, then take a day of Greek, hit it and write on. Here it is. While the soldiers were doing their fearful work. While the soldiers were doing their fearful work, Jesus prayed for his enemies, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Ellen White nails it. She's a prophet. Some people say she's not a theologian. I'm like, yeah, she's a prophet. Prophet, theologian. <laughs> In that order, right? So, so there it is. Ellen White paints the picture there. Now, there's another part of this that I, I reflected upon, and she says, not she, Luke says, but Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. In other words, Jesus didn't say, I forgive you, which he could have. He says, Father, forgive them. Now, this, this brings into the picture a third party. In other words, this is not just about Jesus and the soldiers, and, and this is really what's taking place here. He says, look, Father, forgive them. Now, I have a son, five years old, and uh, I still remember the day he was born. Just, and those of you that are parents, I never thought I could love another human being like that. Just beautiful. Never, never forget that moment. Um, even when Hudson, my son, gets a splinter, I mean, it just does something to me. 
And there would be nothing that would break my heart more as a father to see my son uh, tortured in front of me. I mean, that would, that would destroy me, you know? And you're just watching this. So, in this picture, if you can imagine the heart of the father watching his son being, being tortured, and in the very act of that torture, Jesus says to the Father, Forgive him. Forgive him. I mean, what do we, what do we call that? I mean, what, what do we call that? Grace. Intercession. Intercession. Advocacy. Advocacy. The victim becomes the advocate. <laughs> the person that we have hurt the most in the universe becomes our greatest advocate. And it's while it's happening. It's while it's happening. I mean, you can't help but love a God like that while it's happening. And it, and it practical application to me is I, sometimes I get a false picture of God in my head and I think that when I make a mistake, when I fall short, when I sin, that I have to be in the doghouse. You know what I mean? pay penance in order to earn my way back to the heart of God. But this is the real heart of God. In other words, God is longing to forgive. This is, this is who He is. This is not talking about unconditional forgiveness, but the, the reality is, this, this reveals the heart of God, is that in the very act of our transgression, the heart of God is advocacy. It's yearning to forgive. And I want to tell you that, that as I read this passage and I engaged it with my whole mind, the left side and the right side, logic, reason, and imagination. And as I looked at the passage and I followed Ellen White's counsel that to, to picture the passage... You know, you just can't help but love a God like that. And there will be a generation that use their God-given sanctified imagination to think about Jesus all day long, like Enoch, and were transformed from glory to glory. Amen? Do you want to be like that? From character to character, from faith to faith, and from day to day today. I know if you're like me, you have things in your head you wish you never got in there. You know what I'm talking about? Mental images, 
that you wish you could unsee. And sometimes that thing plays on a loop over and over and over again. This is the key, guys. We need to build new neural pathways where the new tape, the new thing, the new record that plays over and over again is not the filth of the world, but it's the mental picture of Jesus that's based on Scripture, a new use of our imagination. It's going to be hard in the beginning, but keep on doing it. Let this be your favorite thought every day. Amen? The place that you love to go when you're waiting in line at Walmart rather than your phone. Amen. The place that you long to go and think about in your, in your moments that you have a little bit of time. That is going to mold the generation that looks like Jesus because it's through our imagination that there is transformation. How many of you want to be like Jesus by His grace? Amen. Let's stand together as we pray. Ask the Lord to help us with our thoughts by His grace. Our Father in Heaven, we need help with our thoughts. Oh, Lord. There are things in our mind that should have never, never gotten in there, and yet we've played it over and over again. We've sinned in our mind a million times. Lord, forgive us. And Father, by your grace, help us to build new neural pathways. Sanctified pathways based on the text, using our God-given imagination to build new mental pictures of Jesus in his glory that will transform us from character to character. Lord, we want to be like Jesus. And we pray that we would not fall into the lie of thinking that we're not guilty as long as we don't do it, but we can think it. Help us to give every thought to the obedience of Christ. For we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.